0: This is Sam Mickens, the Sam Mickens Tomorrow Show. Wherever this finds you, I hope it finds you well. On this episode, we have a uh, discussion with a group of musicians and friends of legendary L.A. punk all-ages venue, The Smell. Then, I speak with my old friend, Kat Larson, in Seattle, and get a uh, short reading on this program itself. Lastly, myself and uh, Chapo Trap House's Matt Chrisman talk at length in a uh, wayfaring conversation about Stephen King's epic multi-novel series, The Dark Tower. So the world can be a hellish place, but for at least 24 years so far, we have had The Smell in Los Angeles. Um, I'm joined by uh, an illustrious uh, roundtable of uh, musicians and, and old friends of, of The Smell, of the space. Um, with me right now, uh, Randy Randall from... Uh, Randy Randall and No Age and uh, Wives is how I first uh, mostly knew you guys. Mm-hmm. Old Smell Band, um, <laughs> George Chen, our uh, musician, record label head, uh, comedian, uh, podcaster, etc. Gadfly. Uh, George, thank oh, you for yeah. Being hello, us. hello.
1: Yeah, right. It's say my, I, it speaks, so then now you associate my voice with the introduction. Right. Okay, good.
0: Aha. Audio. <laughs> audio. Uh, we added, this is an audio program, so you won't see his beautiful face. But uh, my, my old friend, uh, Juan Velasquez, uh, of many projects, including Abe Vagoda, now uh, Cupid and Psyche is your new band, right? Yeah. Yeah. Other, other lots of other fun uh, tours along the road. Yeah. So, Guys, you're with us and I think we may have some other friends coming in in a bit. Um the smell, for people who aren't here, who aren't from LA, who maybe haven't haven't aren't as aware of of it culturally or historically, um what is the smell? Why is it called the smell? What are what are some of your own own personal uh special memories of of the venue as it as we celebrate it's uh 24th anniversary, which is pretty remarkable for a punk rock all ages venue in today's. America. It's
2: wild. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in first. Uh, the smell is an all ages uh, music venue located in downtown Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, it first started at a, at a location in North Hollywood uh, two years before it moved to downtown. So I think started in ninety. 98 maybe end of 97 and then uh two years there I think the name came from the there was a coffee shop next door called the aroma or coffee shop nearby and on Lancashire it was called a I think that's what it was Jim can confirm or deny this hmm. uh, but I think there was something about yeah the aroma and so I think Jim Smith Jarrett Silverman, and Ara I don't know Ara's last name they, they were the three Uh, people who started the smell and kind of as a a I always
0: thought it was just because the alley smelled so fucked up no I guess that's that is (laughs) the second location yeah that is is the second location Yeah,
2: exactly yeah I think it was it was created to sort of um fill the void for music on a DIY, kind of punk underground level that was create. the void was created when Jabberjaw closed down as well as many other, you know, of that age of the mid nineties were, were kind of transitioning into other times. And Jim Jarrett and Ara, you know, were too young to know what a bad idea it would be to start a venue. And and so they, they did it. And then when that one closed down, they were still riding high and moved it to the downtown in LA where nobody, you know, was gonna go and uh, cause it was very sketchy back then. And then you uh, were we 24 years later.
0: Yeah, very different downtown LA back back when I first was playing at The Smell. Uh, Juan, do you want to talk about it? I think you, you started yeah. going as a, as a very young man, right?
3: Yeah, I think I started going when I was like 16 or 15. Um, I heard about it first because I, I grew up in the Inland Empire, which is like 40 minutes east of Los Angeles. And there's this radio station that still exists called KSBC, which was like Claremont, uh, one of the Claremont colleges, I forget which one, but uh, they have a radio station and it always announced shows. And that's like where I actually first heard a lot of like kind of underground bands, like that band Numbers from San Francisco and Shoo mm-hmm. Shoo was the first time I ever heard Shoo Shoo was on KSBC. So they're to blame <laughs> for my longtime fandom. Uh, but I, they were always announced these shows. And they'd give away tickets and stuff. And I think Shushu or someone was, because I'm hearing the smell, me and my, my Ava Goda bandmate, Keith and Psyche bandmate, Michael Vidal, mm-hmm. uh, we were both listening to the radio station and stuff and finding out about new music and all this stuff. And it was like the smell, the smell in downtown, smell in downtown. So I like looked it up, went on the website and literally knew nothing about it. Our friend um, had a car at the time. So she like drove us to go to shows there. And I didn't really know what to expect or anything and like i certainly had never been to downtown at night back then and i didn't know that's what it would be like it was pretty sketchy back then yeah
0: yeah yeah. um it was not like like, a it was not like a cultural hang zone really of (laughs) almost any kind when i was a little kid I, i mean it was it was pretty desolate and pretty hollowed out by uh you know the same forces that have hollowed out all all cities in America. Anyway, <laughs> carry on. One.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, totally. It was it was, yeah, it was kind of scary but fun because I was like, you know, so young and just like so excited to discover new stuff and like had only gone to like shows at like quote unquote like legit venues that were all you know that would have all ages shows sometimes. Um, so I'd never been to like anything like this. was like kind of my intro to like going to more underground shows for me. Um that was sort of my intro to that. And like, it kind of inspired me at the time to, I would see like bands. I think that's like where I first saw Miko Miko. Also they were opening up for someone and I was like, Oh, and we talked, I talked to them and they seemed so cool. And I was like, Oh, they're like my age and they're doing this thing. And I want, I want to make music too. And I've been making music with Michael sort of, and it, it made it feel like it was like a place that we could actually play if we ever got our shit together. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like, what inspired me to be like, oh, these people can do it. I can totally do it. There's nothing, there's no divide between like fan and it was like, I didn't understand the concept of music community. I'd only gone to like concerts that I bought tickets for and Ticketmaster. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that like you could go somewhere and also interact with the musicians and also like be a part of the whole thing. Um, So that was like my first initial kind of reaction to going there as
0: a teenager. So you were, you were just a real classic, uh, all ages venue success story. Juan. I feel <laughs> like, cause that's all like exactly what people describe as like, you know, what, what ideally and, and historically the best of these venues can provide, right? It's like an actual entry point to the community and the feeling that it's, uh, accessible and human thing you can do. And it doesn't have to be in the super rarefied, uh, you know, forum.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: It doesn't agree. have to be in the
0: crypto.com arena. That's what I'm saying.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, George, you're a, you're an old old head from way back.
1: Yeah, and I'm I actually was. You mostly all knew me as someone who lived in San Francisco, and Oakland. But I thought of this mill as kind of a home club for projects that I did. I kind of thought there was like a nexus of like West Coast spots that everyone knew and 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 that was one of the anchors for me the first time i ever heard about the smell was brian miller uh when i was in we were both in the bay area and he would tell Jeff me like, mark, oh brian yeah my mark he was like oh yeah the, uh, the, there's this new venue the guys from gods like pink are starting and um that's how i knew about that and the first time i actually ever went there was i was uh I put out a record for a band from Australia called the Sea Scouts, and we were able to book a show. Uh, I booked a whole West Coast tour, or actually a whole US tour for this band from Australia. Uh, Had never done anything like that before. Uh, They were flying out of LAX, so I just drove down with them because I was like, I bought a van for them to use, and then I just kept the van at the end. So I just went down with them, and it was a North Hollywood location. This is like in 1999. Yeah. And um, I, I found out later, I didn't realize this, but I guess Dean's band also played that show. Uh, I think it was, think they were called Aspirin Kid. I was hoping he could verify this. <laughs> but yeah. And I remember meeting Jim, and that space was like kind of this weird art gallery. I took a couple photos. Um, you know, uh, at the end, I was like, the guy who runs this place is not giving me anything. Like, I don't think this guy likes me. I don't think this guy. <laughs> like, you know, he's just very stone-faced and then at the end he's like, um, there's a party if you guys want to go to a party. And we're like, um, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, we rolled to this party with Jim and, you know, a couple of the random people I recognized. But yeah, that's the first time I ever went there. And then I just kept coming down to the uh, to do shows at the other location. And hello. Uh, John just popped on this. just popped on, this, on the channel.
0: Hey, John. Hi. How are you guys doing? I'm good. You know, uh, Randy. Holy shit. Look at all these guys. This is Juan, George Chen. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
0: hey. The all wild right. hogs. We're, veritable. <laughs> We're ready for a veritable wild hog situation. Um, John, we've been all kind of just talking a bit about the, about the smell. You know, it's, it's been there for 24 years. Well, it's been around for 24 years. It's been there for probably 22 or something. Is that right? Yeah. No. And, uh, you know, is it a historic place? If so, if, is it a legendary place? If so, what is what is its legend? What are your kind of most vivid memories of the place or, um, or, or unique unique kind of feelings about it?
4: I uh, It was the only joint that would book me when I was mm-hmm. first trying to get shows in L.A. Nobody would give me a fucking show, you know? I remember the dude from, uh, what's that joint on Silver Lake next to Cafe Tropical, the... Uh... Anyway, that club, I I sent a cassette to them and the guy basically told me to go fuck myself. (laughs) And then years later was like, hey, do you want to play here? And I was like, I'm the guy, you told me to go fuck myself. And he was like, so no, right? And I was like, yeah, no, but that's why we continue to play at the smell. Mm -hmm. And- uh, They believed in you early on? Yeah, I guess. I mean, Jim just gave us a chance, and the shows were really fun, the kids were great, you know? And uh, I spent most of my time there trying to convince him to let us play in every corner that wasn't the stage, which I was Mm -hmm. pretty successful at for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, Also getting yelled at by him for doing drugs and drinking in there pretty much every Mm -hmm. time, until the last time he yelled at me where I could tell it was really serious. He like screamed in my face. He's like, "You're gonna get us closed!" And I was like, "Okay, we can never get high in the smell again." Mm-hmm. So then we spent a lot of time in the parking lot. You don't usually see Jim doing a lot of yelling. I don't. I got right. him to yell at me probably five, six, ten times. Yeah, sure. All now, right. I mean, we're still we're still cool, <laughs> but there was. And is it just of- like
0: you? You just walk out of the bathroom with just cocaine falling out of your face or how, what, how did it drugs. become an issue? Even at the I evening.
4: was never a bathroom drug guy so I just sure. do it in the open but I would usually do it like backstage and he would just wander back there and be totally like take super umbrage and then I would have the gall to do drugs in the smell. He didn't man. realize my band was so terrible that without the drugs I couldn't get up there and do it and then uh, it was integral to the show being pulled
0: off <laughs> the smell. You
4: did, you, did, you,
0: did you have to do a lot of drugs John when you did the, uh, the Probably the Was most a... I've ever done in my life, yeah. 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 I forgot about that until just now.
4: Yeah, let's not talk about that.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> <been> my punishment. <laughs> uh, Randy, you you kind of gave us a very good introduction. Uh, your band, maybe more than uh, anybody, kind of made the smell central text in your work. You guys put it on your record cover. You guys really try to amplify it.
2: Yeah, I mean, my, my, my first experience at The Smell was much like Wands. I grew up out in the Inland Empire and listened to KSPC and um, <clears throat> was turned on to different music at that point. And um, <clears> this <throat> was pre-internet days or, or limited internet days. So I would read the, the, the calendar section in the LA Times. And I saw that uh, Mike Watt was going to be playing a place called The Smell on Lancashire Boulevard. And I said, oh, Mike Watt. I know Mike Watt from, from Firehose. And I saw him at Lollapalooza on the side stage. And, and so I wanted I wanted to go see Mike Watt, so I got a friend to drive me out there because I couldn't drive, and was just blown away. It was, it was, I, you know, he was just there was no stage. He was playing flip flops and like a, he had like you know like a Hawaiian shirt on and jeans. And then afterwards, he just hung out in the parking lot, putting you know putting stuff in his van, and uh, it just it made me. I, I had that immediate feeling like i could play here like i could start a band if i was in a band this band could play at this place
0: mike watts you know, uh, his slovenliness made it feel accessible
2: absolutely yeah i mean this wasn't a guy. The, <laughs> yeah. you know i'd previously seen him on a you know on a stage sweating you know in irvine meadows you know like the the summer before that or you know, a few months before that he was in a big festival and now here he is just a guy with a bass uh playing in a shitty storefront you know hanging out in the parking lot after talking to kids so that, that just demystified the whole thing for me, and and so that really inspired me. But it took me a few years to 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 convince some some friends to play in a band with me. So um, I just had a lot of four-track cassettes at that point and pretended to be in a band. Um, and then eventually, when I met Dean, he he knew he had the balls to to, to you know play live shows and to book live shows. So um, so he said we should play the smell. I'm like I love the smell. Let's do it. And so we we played there a lot in in our first band, Wives. And um, and then and then when that band broke up, we, or the band No Age, seemed, people seemed to to like it for for reasons that were beyond my understanding because I was used to doing music where no, you know, to two or three kids. And that band, some people were excited about it, and and so as things were going, and people were you know asking us, well, what do you like? Where do you, you know? Where are you from? And it just it it seemed so obvious to me like if we have a chance to to talk to more people than we had before that though i want everybody to come with us i want to you know shove shove a, a wedge into this door to whatever you know mainstream music outlets that we were able to talk to and just like we're not we didn't do this by ourselves there's a whole group of people there's a whole c- culture and community behind us and if you like us you should listen to all, all these other bands and i just made it a, a point of my own i think part of it was i just I didn't think I was worthy of any of that attention and I knew it wasn't for me. I knew I wasn't doing anything that special. Like my, my, my same shitty guitar playing it was my same energy that I'd had if, if for all those years that there was, I wasn't doing anything different. So if, if I was going to get through there, I, I just, it was, it was because of people like Jim and the smell and, and friends like, like George and John and, and Juan. you know, that I was able to do that kind of shit. So I wasn't, I wasn't gonna, um, you know, take the credit. You, you, of, wanted oh, yeah.
0: pull, you wanted to pull the smell along with you. Yeah, it wasn't wherever about... Wherever you could conceivably possibly yeah. get to.
2: I wasn't interested in starring the Randy Randall show. I'd rather star in the smell show and be, you know, and be a, a cheerleader. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make them NFTs. Eventually. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. <laughs> um, let me ask all you guys. What do you think is the worst Thing you've ever, the worst performance or, or experience you've ever had in the snow. As, a, as a human performer. Agent Orange? No, George should start this one, I was saying. Oh, George.
1: <laughs> well, okay, there's a the thing that me and Kyle Madsen would do if there was an act that we were kind of not super interested in and they were on the big stage. We would do this thing in the front room where we just take loose chairs and start doing like this kind of Butoh acrobatic stance thing, which ended up being like me trying to plank on a chair that Madsen was like holding aloft while I was lying down. And we called it chairman of the board. It was like an unofficial performance that was happening in the front room. Uh, Pretty bad, pretty bad stuff.
0: It's very nerdy, George. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Just shitty, shitty parkour for the (laughs) 14 year olds in the front. We
4: played a Basically. lot of bad. we played a lot of bad shows there for sure. I've played I've played poorly there probably ten out of the thirty times I've played there. But to 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 be fair, the twenty times that were really on point there were always like absolutely memorable shows. Shows that I still like every now and then. Somebody will send me a photograph from those shows, and I was like, man, it was berserk. Like debris bits, like motes of disgusting debris in the air and the flat and mm. stuff and the actual, you know, I remember for years defending the smell when people would be like, it smells. And I'd be like, no, it doesn't. And then once I hit like 40, I went there and I was like, oh, it does stink in here. But I was like, but I don't think it did back in the day. I think they have like a new odor.
0: Maybe maybe my nose is more refined now, but I really doubt that. I um, remember it smelling super fucking bad. Not the venue, but at the alley. Way back. But then you know, I lost my sense of smell many years ago. So I also now, say
4: that nobody looks better and more uh quaffed than Jim. The dude has looked the same for 25 years since yeah, I was a kid. I thought he was 40 when I was like 23, and now I look older than him. He's got like a aging painting of himself in this in the basement of uh, the
0: smell or something. Yeah, he's really held it down as like the eternal I mean, Eddie Monster. But <laughs> cl- but just clean cut. You could just set a you can set a watch to that. Yeah. that haircut uh juan what's the worst thing you let me hear from somebody else what's the worst band you ever saw at the smell that is not yourself that's yeah me, or, or me
3: <laughs> <laughs> i um it's so funny i feel like okay i feel like i've seen a lot of i think when i okay i first started seeing like noise bands there like i didn't even know noise bands were a thing okay Wait, you're saying this so, is like, the
1: worst thing
0: no
3: no 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 <laughs> well but like at the time i, was I didn't like, get it they didn't
0: even have instruments it just sounded like a bunch of crazy
3: i forgot it was. but one time i like went to i forgot i forgot why i was there but there was someone playing and all they did was like drag a cymbal from one room to the other with like contact mics or something mm-hmm. and i legitimately awesome. like thought it was like the coolest thing at the time right. and i but my friend who came with me was like this is like Really lame, dude. And I was like, no, it's so cool. And he's like, people are legit just doing like I'm crossing my arms and bobbing my hands for the people who can't see me. And yeah. I was like, you know, the the classic noise like bro like bob thing. And I was like, no, and this Matthew is Matthew so Barney cool. in the corner kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, so it wasn't like I, I actually enjoyed it because I had never seen anything like this. Like for me, it was the entry point to so many different kinds of like art forms and stuff like i growing up in the empire like i knew about stuff i guess that was like on k-rock or whatever but i never seen i still i don't even know if they played did they play noise stuff on kcc i don't know but it was like where i first discovered like oh you can just do this and then i got me into like okay what's noise music what is experimental music and um so it wasn't like terrible but it was like now i would not i can't i don't have the patience maybe for a guy doing that um but, well, but it's and, also
0: like this smell was, was a place that you got to kind of develop these teenage opinions. Like you got to have the opinion that like, wow, this is so sick. This dude just fucking dragging a hi-hat across yeah, the floor. Exactly. But then, you know, you got to learn and see that there were even sicker, even sicker realms of noise music to discover. Right. Very true. <laughs> that really reminds me many, many, many years ago. Uh, I had this idea for a band and we never did it, but it was called the, uh, animal clash and you just get a bunch of animals like from the pet store and put contact mics on them and then put them in like graceland or whatever just get like some raccoons Mm -hmm. some snakes you can't buy a raccoon man you gotta go Uh, catch one you can catch yeah okay so you catch you catch the raccoons and the (laughs) possums or whatever
3: and you just like you just
0: like you bring them all in in a big sack and you just like throw the sack into the dance floor like when the cartels throw like decapitated heads into the discotheque or whatever. You just like throw them in.
4: Some ideas are maybe best Meant not to happen. I'm guessing that might be one of them. Uh, I don't know. you don't <laughs> want to be
1: the
0: guy who threw a sack of animals. Dog. I mean, I, lived, like, yeah, I lived in I lived in bands. You're like it was a great show. <laughs> it was, no, I don't know. I was in. I I lived in Seattle this, at this point, so they probably wouldn't have looked too kindly upon the sack I, of animals. I've got a question.
4: Did yeah. so? Here's something. I'm sure you guys may have already mentioned this, but um, I did notice that the smell would always employ people that would hang out outside, like random homeless dudes that would be there all the time, and then that dude would end up doing sound. And uh, I remember actually being impressed with the sound one guy was doing one night. I was like, man, it fucking sounds great. He's like, thank you. And I was like, you're the guy that like lives in the alley, right? And he's like, yeah. And then later that night he got knocked out by another homeless guy. And I was like, it's always something here. You know, like there's never, every show was interesting and Jim really sort of like the family effect was in full effect there, you know, where he'd be like, all right, well, if you're going to hang out every day, I'm going to put you to work. Like you're going to work the door or this guy's now doing sound, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean Daniel, of course. Daniel is the is the most famous. Uh, yeah, that's the guy that got knocked out. I think that night could be. He he gets into fights, but uh, I, I don't know about. I I don't know if I ever remember anybody doing sound, but Randy so, maybe. Yeah,
2: so the sound guy was Mel from the smell. Mel came <laughs> from uh, the North Hollywood location, and when when Jim moved to downtown, he lived there. So the first the first sound booth was basically his bedroom, mm-hmm. like set up kind of where the the built sound booth, is before there was a built sound booth, there was um, some chairs with um, some sheets hung over um And he had a girlfriend that was, it was, you know, I think what you colloquially call a, a crackhead, who uh, also, lived and Mel also did quite a bit of drugs, I, I believe in, in the smell. Um, so he was always
4: very nice to me, of and, course. Right, and yeah. I actually complimented him on his sound. I was like, dude, I didn't know you had this skill. And he's like, I do everything pretty good. Yeah, like, I mean, he was just like, I'm a jack of all trades, I can yeah. fix the toilet. And I was like, obviously not, maybe not. Wow.
1: <laughs> but,
2: you know, it was I'm, kind of a MacGyver. There was a lot of like yeah. tinfoil and yeah, maybe kind of there was a tweaker. <laughs> I, never a tweaker I never got electrocuted,
4: I never got electrocuted there. And I can't say that for some of the bigger clubs in LA, like you know, like I there was never. It was always really safe, uh, not not artistically, but like literally <laughs> like there'd be like a mosh pit or something. And I don't really ever remember there being a lot of fights there. Like the general yeah. spirit there was pretty forgiving of each other and cool, you know?
0: Yeah, not yeah. a lot of fights and not like security, right? Probably, <laughs> probably no booze is very helpful. And no booze that. is yeah, helpful yeah. for that too.
2: Yeah, well, I think there was a sense of community too where people police themselves or there was that feeling of, you know, like a mosh pit sort of ethos. If someone falls down, you pick them up you know, you're not going to stump on their heads and, right. you know, everyone's in it together kind of thing.
4: I remember I saw Jim drunk at his birthday one time and it was like seeing my dad naked. I was like, you drink? And he was like, yeah, I drink.
2: And I was like, what the fuck?
4: And he was totally hilarious. And like, Jim was like on, on fire that night. Like, I was so glad I wasn't going to go. And then the last minute I was like, fuck it, I'll go say happy birthday to Jim. And he was totally, I think he sang karaoke. Like it was... Yeah. The exact opposite of everything I'd come to know about Jim culminated in one evening of him having a few drinks, and I'm on his like 40th birthday or something. Maybe it was a magical evening, but uh, yeah, it turns out I had been judging him wrongly the whole time.
0: He's a party animal. <laughs> Jim, um, he dad, yeah. a party
4: animal. Let me he just, let me
0: ask you guys since Jim's not here to be uh embarrassed by this kind of question, where do you guys think this? This mensch, this this uh, all all this all this community uh, goodwill the gym is, has just pumped out, as you say, so diligently and consistently, and you know, hiring the dudes outside, and you know, helping various people and kids and artists, you know, through these now whatever two and a half decades. Uh, what do you guys think? Where does that come from? What's why is Jim why is Jim so good?
2: well he by day he is a union teamster he's a union organizer by day right so by trade he does that so there's there's you know I, I think he he walks the walk of the collective good right you know he he puts it in practice you know that's his job of looking out for people as a community and then the the off hours are providing a safe space for you know the kind of the the detritus or the outcasts or the sort of the the nerdy wells of the younger you know part of the population, you know, I think providing that safe sort of space, um, is a great community service. Uh, so, but why, I mean, you'd have to ask him, you know, my feeling is that he, you know, he, those ethos that I think we've all kind of come across as teenagers when you, you know, you first hear minor threat or, or, you know, experience punk and understand that, like, you know, I'm 14, like the world's fucked. I want to make the world, the world should be like this. You know, there, I think Jim has been able to hold on to that um, that sort of anger and that sort of, or not anger, but the um, outrage. You know, to to feel like the world he wants to shape the world in 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 a better way. You know, or, or put that into effect.
0: The smell, it, it always feels like it's very imperiled, and it now you know exists in a very, as we talked about, like a very different downtown LA. It's kind of this like bubble amongst like a bunch of. Uh, rich people playground stuff so it's so it's amazing that it's still there and it's still held on and i remember a few years ago i i heard it was getting shut down by the the landlord or whatever but uh but it's still there and it's still continuing
2: yeah i think the idea is that um yeah this parking lot joe's parking garage bought that whole block so mm-hmm. it's sort of at their at their uh, behest whenever they f- find it is good for them business-wise they'll just level the rest of those all those buildings i think they own them all now but it's, and- it's-
4: it's still, uh, for the time being, not being shut down. Because I've heard this on and off as many times I've heard this about Amiibo over the years, where this great thing that's been there seemingly (laughs) I can remember uh, has been in peril, Uh, but right now it's in a sort of like limbo of waiting
2: it's, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's been for the last five years since, since what, what happened was, um, as far as I can say, but, you know, the new owners were going to do some construction. So they posted a sign saying that, like, you know, construction is coming. You have to do that by, you know, if you file plans for the city. Right. So they posted that. And then that's what set it off and, and, you know, kind of got the, we got to relocate it, got to find something else. And real estate in LA has just gotten 100% worse every, every year since then. So the ability to, for Jim to move it somewhere else at this point is, is, unlikely so it's kind of just been living month to month for the last you know six years
0: gentlemen uh thank you so much for being with hey. me um Hi guys you know, Good to see you, John. love yeah. it love it while it's with still with us and love uh jim you know yeah Many congratulations, congratulations on sticking around this
4: long you know yeah. guys like athlete's foot except a doer yeah. <laughs> in a good way, you know. Tenacious. Tenacious. Thanks. That's what I was looking for. I'm not I'll see you guys
0: later. All right. Bye yeah. right,
4: right.
0: friend. Bye everybody. take care. I'm joined now by my very old friend, Kat Larson, who is a uh uh an energy healer and and tarot reader and and uh does other practices up in Seattle. Hello, Kat.
5: Hello,
0: Sam. How are Thanks you? Thanks for
5: having me. I'm well.
0: Good to see you. you. Um, Kat, as we are speaking, it's not quite a New Year's Day, but very close to. Um, it's a new year. Uh, this is a new program. And as part of the, uh, you know, very much, this is, is going to be on the third episode, but this is still very much a uh, project in its infancy, still de- developing its uh bone structure, et cetera. So I thought it would be fun to do a, a a short tarot reading on the program itself with you, Kat.
5: Okay. Fantastic. So we're going to do a three card reading and historically, I I think three card readings are traditionally read as past, present, and future. Mm. However, when I do three card readings, I really am taking the information from all three of the cards and then pulling that into create um, a story or really a mirror for the energy that you're in right now Mm -hmm. and so this reading will read the energy as you current like as you're currently in it the way that i read is um not for prediction it really is about self-reflection so i use tarot as a tool really for, um, peering into, uh, my soulscape, And so I invite you to consider tarot as a tool in that way for you as well. Um, using the pictures and mythology and symbols that are embedded in each of the cards really as, um, guidance for you to, uh, reconnect with your, um, your inner compass. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is interesting because, um, it's a little different in that I'm accustomed to reading for a person, but we're reading for, um, uh, another extension of you. And so this will be fun to see what comes, comes up. So when I begin readings, I like to state essentially a prayer Mm -hmm. that only the information, the wisdom, and the guidance come through that is the most supportive to you and your optimal well-being. And so prefer for you and the Sam Mickens Tomorrow Show.
0: Wonderful. Is there anything we should know about the uh, the deck you're using, Kat, or anything else? Oh, yeah.
5: Thanks for asking. Yeah, I specifically use, I use a lot of different decks, mm-hmm. but the one that we're using today is called the Motherpiece Tarot deck. And this was created by two women, Karen Vogel and Vicky Noble. And they created this deck at the end of the 70s, I think, hmm. went into print finally in 81. But they had they realized that with tarot, or some people call it tarot, that a lot of the decks... Um, I mean, most of the decks back then were heavily patriarchally influenced. And so they created the Mother Peace deck as their effort to um, bring some balance in between like masculine and feminine energies, especially through the tool of tarot. So it's really beautiful and a lot of cross-cultural references. So mm-hmm. um, symbols um, um, from around the world, different body types. Um, sure. And I just, I really love how inclusive It's a very, it's is. an
0: inclusive deck. Yeah, sounds It like
5: is, it, it is. Sounds and like so it. with some other, decks it's a little less engaging that way and a little bit more prescriptive and so i Mm -hmm. love this because it's just got softer energy and it's a
0: non-determinist deck Mm
5: -hmm. yeah
0: um so So being that this is an audio program i thought perhaps as you draw uh i can i can describe to the uh to the folks at home what what's on the what's on the card if that sounds yeah
5: yeah so, um, as you stated, I'm also an energy healer and the way that I work with tarot is very similar in energy. Um, I trust that. So even though we're not in the same room, I'm shuffling the cards and I'm picking the cards physically, but I trust that your higher awareness and your higher consciousness is guiding me right now to the cards that are going to be the best, most supportive to you and what's good and true and beautiful for you and your show. Mm-hmm. So I'm just shuffling the cards right now.
0: These are circular cards.
5: They are, which I love. Um, Okay, so now I am essentially channeling and connecting with you in the way that I do. All right, so Sam, what I'd like you to do is to please say your full name. And then, because this also is a reading for your show, um, saying... The, your full name and the name of your show.
0: Sam Thomas Mickens, is Sam Mickens Tomorrow Show.
5: OK. So this is the Sam Mickens Tomorrow Show. So I'm picking three cards. And these three cards are going to show um, where the energy is at right now for your show. And I know that we said we would just do a three-card read, but if we have time, um, we can do maybe a couple more pulls of three cards so that we can see where you're at right now and then the energy that the Sam Micken show is moving into. Does it sound Mm. okay? Sure. Okay, cool. So So we've got two major arcana cards and then Mm -hmm. we've got one court card, which is the... um, shaman of wands so in other decks this would be known as the king of wands
0: the king of wands
5: Um, mm -hmm. so wands uh is um it symbolizes the element of fire Mm. which represents your creative fire your spiritual fire um uh really it's your will Um, it's ambition and not in that patriarchal sense of ambition. I mean, it's our birthright to have desire and to have dreams and to have like things that we want to create. And this is the energy that really is um, fueling you to pursue those desires and dreams. It's the creative
0: creative drive, the shaman of wants.
5: It's not necessarily creative. Creative meaning with a power to desire something and Mm -hmm. then assert your will to make it so that type of creation. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the creativity needs to be applied toward a fine art per se. It could just Mm -hmm. be whatever it is that I wish to design and build for my life. And with the Shaman of Wands, um, when I read the court cards, I don't read in terms of gender, king, queen. It's just a progression of um, the maturity of how you understand and, um, know or sense or use, um, this energy. And so by picking this card, it's showing that you are in a very mature space to, um, offer leadership and, um, pursue your projects. And this is a wonderful way of leadership because sometimes people pursue, people desire leadership, um, for their ego to help them feel powerful because, um, whatever issues of lack they have. But this, um, when this card comes up, it's showing that you are in right leadership of self. And when one is in right leadership of self, then they are, um, in a better position to offer guidance and leadership to others. Does that make sense? And so it's very collaborative. Um, I do love collaboration. Yeah. So collaborative energy and, um, and really, as it pertains to the Sam Mickens' Tomorrow Show, um, it's fire. Like, all lights are green and go. And can I, you know can I quote
0: you on that, Kat? It's, it's yeah. fire?
5: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah okay. Please do. Okay. Uh, and it, so now I'm just channeling, and maybe this sounds cliche, but it's healing. You have a very... Um, the way that you look at the world is so unique and, um, the Sam Micken show is just a really wonderful vessel for you to continue to be this creative visionary that you are, but it, it looks like it's almost creating more channels for you. Um, cause I know that you are a musician and I mean, you're just a highly creative person, mm-hmm. but there's something really interesting about what you're creating in broadcasting These relationships that you have with people, whether or not it's just a short connection, are you revealing these bigger, longer relationships that you've had with people? But it's it's just—it's another—it's just a different way of creating for you, maybe. And um, it's—it feels really expansive and really exciting and very generative because they're showing that also, like as you work with more and more people, just more and more possibilities come, and that's the jazz of life, right there it's just boom. So really exciting. So you also have the chariot and um, the strength card. So these are um, what's known as major arcana. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can see this. Yeah. Um, uh, so with tarot, and the minor arcana is representative of the four suits, right? And Mm -hmm. I like to think of that as causative energy. It's more you and your decisions and kind of your ego involved and you kind of get to decide which way you're steering the wheel when it comes to major arcana. It's um, I like to think of these as karmic cards or like soul cards. So it really is more like your soul guiding you and soul lessons. And um, also another way of thinking it would thinking of um, major arcana would be like thematic energy that you're in, like the theme. And Mm -hmm. the theme right now is movement and, um, I, maybe this is obvious too, but it's like fierce movement forward and expression, and allowing your strength to shine through that. So, with the strength card, the way that I interpret this card—how do I hold this? Sorry, can you see that? Trying yeah. to hold it right so you can see it. Yeah. All right. So looks we, like so there's the a looks
0: like there's a nice lady with a raccoon and a wolf and some other some river birds hanging around.
5: Yeah, and Ooh. so and the lady is nude. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I interpret this is that you're in your skin, you're feeling at home in like the vessel of your body. And the more comfortable we are in this vessel, Mm -hmm. then the safer and more secure we feel in how it is that we put forth our confidence and how it is that we express either our true nature or however it is that we want to pursue, whatever it is that we want in life.
2: Mm -hmm. And
5: so, um, all the animals that are surrounding her, um, represent other things as well um i won't go into the details of each of them but there's lots of um death and rebirth so transformation cycles um knowing how to utilize fear um loyalty um and trusting your higher wisdom trusting your connection to um is that language too esoteric or is it okay no it's fine So trusting your higher wisdom and then maybe the connection also that you have, not maybe, I mean, but maybe you choose to like agree with this type of thinking, maybe not, but um, so the way that I think of it is that our souls, it's like, it's our own tank of our own like big consciousness, but we're all connected to another super consciousness. And so it's like how you trust your channel to your higher wisdom and how that connects you to, our collective wisdom and collective consciousness. And so trusting your intuition. Um, But the strength card really is just like, I suppose, uh, um, just encouragement, like to continue to feel yourself in that space. And um, so strength and chariot and the wands essentially the chariot. I'll let me expand this card. So, um, chariot is always suggesting that there is movement, and this generally, a, it's this an, is
0: a chariot drawn by looks like some gazelles, perhaps, and there is a yeah, starry I some
5: mythical creatures.
0: There's a starry Miyazaki-esque uh, lady stretched over the top there.
5: I think her name is. Um, she's a representation of the cosmos, <laughs> and I'm probably. Saying this incorrectly, you might want to look this up and okay. insert the proper word, but I think their name is Newt, N U T. So it's like the vast cosmos and that energy and that wisdom coming in and blanketing you. Um, and then we have a tree again. So if you notice in the strength card and also the chariot card, I don't, oh my gosh, mm-hmm.
0: um,
5: we have have the tree. The way that I interpret this is um, can be the tree of life, but also. Um, A representation of um, how it is that we just spoke about this accessing your higher wisdom and so the chariot is like okay you're moving forward and um, it is giving you advice to to um, stay on the course that you've created maintain your determination maintain your focus. The other thing that I read from this card specifically also, um, this warrior or huntress person is carrying some sort of weapon, um, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's not a weapon. What I think that's interesting about this tool is that it can either be used for um, violence or she's holding um, a piece of fruit and Mm -hmm. presumably has used that tool to cut the fruit. And so that's Mm -hmm. nourishment. Um, It's, I mean, it's more of like an ax, but I liken it to a sword. And that suit in the deck represents our mind and our mental patterns. And so just a reminder to use this tool, your mind, um, in the most beneficial way for yourself that creates the most nourishment. Because as you know, as a human being that's been roaming on this earth for a while, I'm sure you've experienced as well how fast our minds can shift and work against us or work for us. And so this is, um, essentially saying like drive your mind and continue forward. And, um, right. The chariot
0: are, of my mind. Yeah. forward And in, really in so the
5: strength part, um, <laughs> so if, if, so this reading for you and the Sam Mickens tomorrow show, um, it's got, just so much positive energy around it and so much generative energy. And so not that there was a question. I mean, I think that we walked into this just kind of broad, but like oh I had this, I had like, questions.
0: Continue. I had a lot of questions. Continue. Oh, <laughs> no, really? Do no, you okay?
5: But basically continue. And it seems um, uh at least from how I'm sensing the energy and reading the cards, that your intentions are um are good and um and I, I mean I just keep seeing like the green lights just continue yeah. does that resonate or do you have any questions about anything
0: I know I'm I'm excited I mean it's a I'd say that's a very positive reading all I mean you said uh, it's fire keep feeling myself <laughs> uh, the green lights just go on forever it sounds uh, I'm excited
5: uh, yeah it's just like a gateway to 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 more it's 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 good 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 energy so how i would traditionally do the next set of three cards for a reading Mm -hmm. would be it's like advice on what to do Mm -hmm. with the energy that you're in right now although i feel like (laughs) it's pretty clear from the cards that just came up but i mean i do
0: if i am if i am in fact on a chariot with an axe it seems like there is some forward momentum there
5: so this, I think, is less about the Sam Micken show and mm. more about you, which makes mm. sense since you're the host. Copy. Um, all right. So we got another major arcana card.
0: Mm-hmm. We
5: have the Empress. Mm. So this is like the um, archetypal mother. Uh, very nurturing. Uh, I love this card in this particular deck. So we have a female figure who is lying on her side, real voluptuous and seductive looking with this leopard blanket draped over her and there's a little mirror that's um just down below her and i think this is interesting because traditionally um the way that i read this is that when we're looking in a mirror i mean maybe sometimes we're looking at ourselves but i feel like often we're looking in the mirror to make sure that we can see how the world is seeing us Mm -hmm. and that we like that view or we like that image and what i love about this card and this energy is like oh i'm that like Right now, I'm not really concerned with how people are seeing me. I'm really just feeling um, my primal beauty Mm -hmm. and allowing myself to relax and enjoy that. And um, very very fertile energy, so um, fecundity, like just, um, again, to reuse the word over and over again, just highly creative and um very gentle very intuitive very receptive and when you can hold yourself in this archetypal mother energy so much transformation is possible and um and uh it's just wonderful energy to give birth to new things Mm. so the advice figure
0: the empress has a bit of a uh gauguin uh quality but perhaps less leery if it was in fact made yeah,
5: two totally. as a man as part of a tarot deck. Yeah, yeah. so um, the uh, last two cards that we have are swords. And so as we mm. talked about earlier, oh, here we go, so you can kind of see the pictures here. Oh, we cool. have the two of swords and then the seven of swords. And so swords is the element of air, which represents mental patterns and the intellect. And swords is a difficult suit. Um, because you know, as we've experienced as human beings, the mind is just—it's um, either drive. Most often, it's driving us instead of us driving it. Um, and so, uh, this is just—you know—gentle advice. Take it or leave it. If it resonates, fantastic. Um, to continue trusting your intuition and um, to bring ease—it really. You're the only person that can create that ease in your mind. I don't know. Let me, let me, is... Yeah,
0: let me let me let me describe what's on these two cards because they're both quite yeah. striking. The two, uh, it, it appears to be a, a person with two feathers, twirling them in the air, in a uh, infinity pattern. With a, uh, I'm going to say that's some kind of a heron or a crane uh, perched next to it, or an ibis. Uh, with, a, with a very full uh, lustrous moon above in the night sky. And then the, the, uh, it's the Seven, right? hmm The Seven is a uh, fox outside of a uh, chicken uh, enclosure, a pretty serious industrial chicken enclosure, it looks like, uh, with a ladder of seven swords uh, to potentially breach the wall, preparing to do so. Right. I like those. Comments. Yes.
5: Yeah. What do you see in these cards from the pictures?
0: Well, I just like described this... everything. No, I'm kidding. Um, no.
5: <laughs> I meant like not see visually, but like yes, what do metaphorically,
0: you metaphorically.
5: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, um, I presume that, uh, you know, on the, on the, in the case of the seven, uh, you know, those swords as, as, uh, agents of your agents of your mind and your mental uh, energy are creating either a pathway for you as the Fox to go in and eat the roosters and hens or a, uh, to over some hindrance, or, or it could be, uh, providing a route for your, uh, murderer to the law, <laughs> if you, if you take it from the point of view of the chickens, you know? But of course, I I relate more to the fox in this case.
5: Okay. Some people read this card as um, just a caution to be aware of deception. And Mm. the way that I read it is more so how our own minds can deceive ourselves. Um, A classic way of interpreting this card is that it either is talking about some sort of mental opposition or, um, and the antidote to that would be perseverance. So, um, I think that's interesting. And I think that's a little bit how you read the Fox. Mm -hmm. So be like Fox. And, uh, so basically the advice here is to, I'm going to go off the cards and just sort of channel here, um, going back to the chariot, uh, being clear, uh, like relentlessly clear on what the goal and the mission of the Sam Mickens tomorrow show is, And when you can stay clear on what the mission is, it can kind of tame the mind and wanting to run in so many different directions. And so when you have that clear mission or clear focus, clear thesis, whatever you want to call it, that also will help in um, calming your mind. Um, There's a lot of moon energy in your reading as well. So Um, this is receptive energy. So just being, I feel like you already are receptive. So it would just encourage you to continue to be so receptive and um, continue to trust other ways that you are receiving guidance and um, direction and information. So uh, trusting your intuition. And um, again, I mean, really what I'm hearing is have fun, have fun creating this cool 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 show and i'm really glad that you invited me to be a part of it thank you
0: thank you Kat. um it's been a pleasure and do you want to tell folks anything? Where they can find you, or, or what you do, or sure.
5: Um, so on Instagram, I can be found at Cat <laughs> Larson Healer, and then um, my website is simply catlarson.com. Um, I, as you already stated, available for energy healing and what I like to call tarot therapy, and I'm also a Reiki master teacher. And yeah, that's me.
0: Bing bong. So I am joined now by Matthew Chrisman of uh, the Chapo Trap House program, Hell of Presidents, Frost Chrisman, of course, the Kush Vlog, various other ventures. Um, and we are here to discuss uh, Stephen King's magnum opus, the Dark Tower series. Uh, as we were talking about a moment ago, in some ways this could be couldn't be less timely as we're kind of in a nadir point in terms of the pop mainstream uh, king level of king fancy. I feel like there was a bit of a burst that that some felt was a king assance a uh, yeah. couple years ago, and I feel like that wave sort of crashed and is now, you know, he's sort of back in the you know in the rocks for a while.
6: I, I think that that I think that that stand remake might have done it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I feel like somewhere between the first It movie and the second It movie, it it was kind of starting to turned, fall apart. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then by the time the stand show, at the very beginning of the pandemic, with mm, like Whoopi yeah. and stuff, <laughs> came out, I feel like people were kind of out again yeah. on King for a while. So you know, but he'll we'll always, he'll come back. Um, but of course, in other ways, it, it is a very timely series and that our own world that we live in is actually perhaps arguably in the process of moving on as we speak. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, <laughs> uh, and also the, the series, you know, did a lot of things, especially in kind of its latter half that at the time, I think a lot of people found too weird or, uh, alienating in some way with a lot of metatextual commentary and king putting himself into the series in a fiction suit etc yeah. and also the interdiction right of lots of uh other big ip he put in the harry potter balls and he put mm-hmm. in the doctor doom lightsaber werewolf robots and stuff yeah. so there was that was a, a bit ahead of its time too when we see things today like space jam too yeah seriously um So the the series has kind of a weird place, I think, in culture and awareness, because it is definitely, you know, by King, the self-professed, like, major epic of his work and his life. And he's this massively popular author. But I think this series, for whatever reasons, uh, still has kind of a niche culty following and is thought of as kind of apart from his best or, you know greatest works by most people.
6: Mm, um, it's, uh, and, and it didn't help that the attempt to make a movie out of it
0: uh, was absolutely the worst bombed. Thing.
6: The worst, ooh, well, one of could, the worst <laughs> King adaptations of all time. Probably Worse the least. The mangler.
0: Oh well, the Mangler, yeah, the Mangler at least is kind of there's some fun to be had. I feel like the yeah. tower was probably the least pleasurable King adaptation. Maybe it was just it was uh, I although I didn't the watch theater, the pandemic. I didn't watch the pandemic. I didn't watch stand. the pandemic stand either, no. <laughs> but I, I
6: remember sitting I saw it in the theater and I just was stewing
0: stewing the entire time. Yeah. Brutal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, could have been good, maybe, with your uh, Idris Elba and McConaughey, you know, maybe.
6: It was originally going to be a show. It was going to be a series, and then they decided to turn it into a movie. And it it always made sense as a series, you know. If you're going to really tackle the thing, it it made sense as like a long-form show, not as a movie series.
0: Yeah, I I think the movie was just an astonishing failure on so many levels that it's hard to even compute how they achieved such true failure across the board but god bless them. they squished
6: together like three of the books into yeah. a 90-minute movie it's astounding like people complain about their, how there aren't any tight 90s anymore all movies are two and a half hours <laughs>
0: right Finally, the Dark tower was needed, not the place to do that it was yeah. not
6: the minimalist spot you need this stuff to breathe or else you literally have a scene where jake chambers is in his bedroom and there's just a bunch of drawings of towers and it says tower on it to remind you uh with his what's going on with him
0: yeah it was bad it was truly 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 bad and a terrible just terrible uh mcconaughey randall (laughs) flag right you you were not you were not you were invulnerable to his
6: magics
0: (laughs) i mean i just i never i feel like he just well i think i heard somewhere that mcconaughey was very open about i didn't read any of the books I didn't really do any prep for it or anything. I kind of just did evil. He just went for it.
6: Like, what if I was a bad guy?
0: Yeah. And so he's like just a bad guy wizard. And he, uh, yeah, he just does a lot of like wisecracking and a lot of like little set pieces where he's like hanging out in somebody's house with his feet up, like watching TV and he's like, you know, it's not a very, it's not great. But anyway, McConaughey, he gave us some, he gave us some good, he gave us some good times, I guess. He He went, he he made a choice. It was just the wrong one. Bad choice. Yeah. Um, my own experience, uh, with the, with the series was kind of spread out over my life. I read the first three books as a kid, uh, gunslinger drawing of the three in the wasteland. And I loved them when I was a kid, but you know, I was at the appropriate age to be reading lots of Stephen King books. I feel like, um, I was, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun and I was very compelled, but then I actually experienced that long break. And I think by the time wizarding glass came out, I had kind of moved on to other interests and was more of a older teenager, young adult, I think. And then I read the, all of the series again as an adult and read the last four that I had never read, um, and loved it. And it was great. And I mean, I feel like for all of King's, uh, sometimes not wonderful, not tremendous prose, And for all of his sometimes weird sexual and <laughs> racial digressions. And, yes. you know, there are some, there, there are a lot of imperfections, but, but King overall remains kind of a lovable figure. Right. And, uh, um, absolutely for me. 100%. Yeah. For, yeah, for me as well. So, so with all of that said, uh, this conversation is kind of a lark or reverie, you know, I just, was interested to hear your thoughts about this series because I don't hear it talked about so much. And I've heard you, I'm a, a longtime Chapo listener and fan, and I've heard you reference stuff, you know, the glossary of the of the Dark Tower a lot on the show. I feel like you say you you reference the beam, you reference uh, Quartet, uh, the Crimson King himself. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear, Matt. What was your experience with the books? When did you read them? What and you know, just what what do you think this series means, or or is uh, what do, where, where do you think it should be placed in our in our literary understanding?
6: So I had a very similar experience with the books to you. I read them uh, as a young adult, like a a, a uh, pubescent boy. I remember I read, uh, I think I read like all three of them or something on a drive to florida uh and just blaze through them
1: mm-hmm.
6: they were they had a very deep impact on me uh but you know i felt left hanging by the end of the wasteland where they just are chugging along on blaine the motto and it's like well what what
0: it is quite a cliffhanger
6: yeah and then i yeah i got older i sort of moved on i kept reading king and i would get my fix from his references to the dark tower that are marbled throughout his other books. Right. Because I was reading at that point basically everything he put out. So I read a bunch of books, some of uh that you don't think are connected until they just like smack you in the head at the end. Like, I don't know if you ever read Insomnia.
0: I'm aware of uh Insomnia. And for those who are not taking the time to read Insomnia, for example, uh Yeah, you don't need to. It's very <laughs> weird. It's about it's about a an old widower who's like.
6: Gonna, he's like dealing with his mortality and getting like weirdly horny, and then he finds and out like the dementia involved, right? And he has to stop this guy from killing a uh, a abortion uh, advocate, mm-hmm. and it's and it all turns out that he is saving the life of a kid who is going to be necessary to uh, the salvation of the of the beams. And of the dark right. tower. You're like, Indeed, and I remember reading that after having, you know, it's been years since the, the last dark tower book had come out. I was like, Oh, a snap. And that just felt really cool. That was just <laughs> neat. Just seeing that puzzle piece snap into place.
0: Well, and this and is then, before, yeah, so I, go ahead. You know, I'm sorry. No, I was ahead. just saying this is before, you know, so much of a focus broadly on shared universes, right? King Ritt was doing oh, yeah. this in a way that was again, perhaps, ahead of its time in the mainstream curve, right?
6: Certainly like not, you know, he, he was bringing that comic book sensibility to literature before it has sort of taken over everything.
0: Yeah.
6: Uh, and uh, then well, I was older by the time Wizard of Glass came out and I, I didn't have that breathless anticipation that I'd had and yeah. then, but I still was pretty pissed off when it just turned into a prequel because I had like, okay, we're finally going to find out what's going to happen. And just to have it go, okay, we're going to go back to before the, before the fall of Gilead. Right. And Gilead. I was like, what <laughs> this?
0: Oh, and teenage, I enjoyed reading it. Teenage. But it's the Roland teenage. Roland's coming adventures, story. Yeah. yeah. And the young that, Roland adventures. Guy. Yeah. And that
6: was frustrating. And I remember kind of having this, frankly resentment while i
0: read the whole thing
6: yeah it's like oh you fucking asshole
0: because at this point there are so many massive massively unresolved parts of the mythos and what's even happening and this yeah yeah.
6: and so then i'm like well fine fuck off and then i was an adult when the books started coming out and i didn't read them when they came out because at that point yeah i moved on and i'd been annoyed enough by wizard and glass and i was like oh and then, you know, you hear and this is the early 2000s. Right?
0: Yeah. And,
6: that and you hear people.
5: Three.
6: Yeah. And people, you hear people don't like them. And, but then one day I just decided I'm going to, I'm going to finish this because it was, because, you know, that they were these very impactful books. So the the references and and the scenes and the imagery and uh vocabulary stuck with me. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to finish this. So I got them off from the library and I probably read them all in like, uh, like two months just tore through them. And i just had, I thought they were all wonderful. I, I you can say they're bad. I don't know what you mean because it, I just, I realized as I was engaging with them that I was just so bought in with King's premise here. And i yeah. so bought into the world that I couldn't bring myself to critically distance from any of it. Uh, and at the time, the, uh, uh, the, fourth wall breaking stuff that a lot of people didn't like where mm-hmm. they meet Stephen King yeah. himself in the books. Ultimately, uh, and and save yeah, his the, life or whatever. Yeah. The, the pastiche stuff about Harry Potter or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the, 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 ending, the infamous ending Yeah, at every level. I was like, yes. Okay. I get it. And I got to say, looking back on it, I feel like all those choices were, uh, I were uh, at the very least coherent and understandable And part of the process of like building a world as a writer and like literally trying to uh, make you essentially building a world, not just like as an imaginative place, but a place with its own uh, real literal like spirituality, like living in it as a member of that, uh, uh, like a person within that world the same way that Tolkien does, you know. Uh, the twist is, is that God in this universe who I think is really felt like the scene in uh, uh, Wasteland when uh, uh, Jake finds the rose in the uh, parking lot and he's looking at it and like, he's hearing all the voices and he's feeling like this joy and terror. Like that is one of the more vivid explications of like the the subjective experience of religious uh, faith and religious like understanding of the world,
0: right? And he passes, uh, he, like, passes out from the ecstasy, right? It's yeah. like a Saint Teresa kind of yeah moment. But
6: the and... twist is, is that there is a god in this universe, and you feel its presence, and you understand the like the orders of the universe and and, and its mythology. But that god is Stephen King. That god is a coked up boomer, right? And, and that is the ultimate, uh, I think, thing that makes a lot of people who invested in that story repulsed is because the implications of that are too nauseating <laughs> that they invested. Because, in, you know, you can imagine getting into Tolkien that you're, uh, you know, you're living in a world of a, like a pre-industrial uh, Christianity uh, or like, you know, an allegorical version of that. Meanwhile, you know, in Stephen King's Dark Tower universe, you were in the mind of, like, a secularized, like, pseudo-Buddhist American uh, boomer. Very
0: horny, rock and roll obsessed. yeah.
6: Yeah. And the thing is, is that he is as much the god of this universe as Tolkien's imagined Christ was of his. Like, we live in a world where God is the revealed preferences of people like Stephen King. And... I understand why people are grossed out by that, but I think as an artistic achievement, it's very impressive, and uh, I find it just an endlessly fruitful and uh, imaginative space. Because, like I said, it's such a well-composed theology that it has the uh, the uh, linguistic usefulness, the tool, the the, the technological. Uh, uh, the technological adeptness of religion, like right. the beam, you know. Well, yeah, um, it's like not the just language a, it's of it. It's, it's not just ka, a, the wheel of ka. Like it's ka not Chet. just that like, like These theology. notions have real meaning.
0: Yeah, right. It's like he well, the, in the series, he's he literally literalizes, creates a whole cosmology for his multiverse, right? For his fictional multiverse that also touches upon our own you know, our own reality or what have you. And yeah, as right. you say, it's the beams, the animal guardians at the end of the beams, mm-hmm. they all unite at the dark tower itself, which is the center pin of all of the multiversal existence. And the tower is sometimes described as the body of this youth, this uh, God in this universe yeah. as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you got the abyss. You have the unstructured uh, space, space where,
6: where todesh space where all the demons are, where mm-hmm. all possibilities uh, are incarnated, which is a thing that uh, Crowley talks about, and sure. it's a
0: feature of a lot of uh, religious traditions, also. Yeah, that's a good point. Is 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 in the book the ultimate antagonist is the Crimson King, who I think is another another that might be another choice that. You know, I, I like and you might appreciate, but I think people found frustrating that at the end, there wasn't a master villain who did like a long oh, log or whatever. But See, it's I great. love that part. He's yeah, like just like a gibbering like, maniac. And because, so- like,
6: yeah, because the evil in his universe because is, is a modern evil. It's the, it's the evil of modern society as filtered through his perceptive apparatus. And, and that is like this. It is this alienating mechanism of capitalism, you know, whatever he wants to put a name to it. That is what he's actually recognizing. And the whole thing about capitalism is that it is inhuman and therefore there can be no human ownership of it. You get to the top, there's not ultimate power. There's ultimate insanity and powerlessness,
0: which makes insanity and debasement.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Just like uh, trapped on the balcony, throwing his little, Grenade Harry Potter because,
0: grenades, uh,
5: yeah,
6: yeah, because yeah, that's right. who is at the top of the system that, that King rec- is surrounded with and has shaped sure. his life
5: uh, since the maximum
6: not, overdrive
0: days or whatever, yeah, yeah,
6: <laughs> yes, <laughs> like it's there is no there is no uh ultimate power that is human or recognizably human, it, it's like a it is a deeper algorithm that is uh denies humanity, which is why. Yeah, the bat, the evil is this thing that compels everyone, yeah. including the Crimson King and, and instrumentalizes everyone. Yeah. Except, of course, Randall Flagg, who is the uh, like actual mystical sort of doorway between the two.
0: Right. But then just gets at et- by a by a spider. Mm-hmm. Just gets e- eaten by a were spider. Oh, this is something I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned Tolkien. Uh my impression is that you're not so much of a tolkien guy but that might not be correct you tell me oh not really I am not but like, I'm, I'm...
6: I, I read the Hobbit at the exact right age where you're supposed yeah. to like and then become addicted to it and it was a, a sixth grade and it was an assigned uh reading for school and I read it and I I remember a lot of it and I think I enjoyed it but I just never was compelled I don't know I read yeah. like Pierce Anthony. Yeah, uh, I did as well. But like, I never, I never caught the Tolkien bug, and yeah. uh, I think a lot of it is, is just it's too neutered. It's not, it's too sexless. I think there's a fundamental, uh, yeah, in like a
0: Star of, Wars prequel kind of yeah, way. It,
6: exactly. There's like a too there's a weird like uh, detachment that I guess at that point in my life I couldn't really vibe with.
0: Um, well, I wanted to ask you about, about that. You know, these are some of the big, uh, mythological, uh, the kind of elements that King builds from, you know, there's a lot of Tolkien, a lot of, uh, spaghetti Westerns and some Arthurian legend. Right. And I'm curious to hear your, how, if I'm, as not a Tolkien guy, I'm not a particularly a Tolkien guy either. Are you a spaghetti Western guy? Are you an Arthurian legend guy?
6: Uh, I think I am. See, the thing is, I, I, I never like got into any of those things, like with any kind of specific nerd intensity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mostly uh, save that for the civil war. Uh, yeah. But what I did was I encountered them through the same sort of cultural baffling as King did. And so even if they weren't things that specifically entranced me, the symbology and like the language they had already
0: rippled through culture. Exactly. They, I'd
6: already absorbed them through all the other stuff <laughs> that I did, that I liked so that like I, I was fully, uh, uh, inured. I was, I was fully prepared to respond to the, the stuff
0: the way that he, uh, r- references it. Right. Um, something I wanted to ask you about that you've kind of discussed a little bit, you know, in, in, in saying, for example, that, the energy that King is at least sensing and expressing as the Crimson King is this maniacal, untethered capitalist drive, death drive, right? Yeah. Um, but what are your, what do you think, uh, in this series in particular, because Stephen King is, is, you know, again, your mileage may vary, but he's charmingly just a sort of uncomplicated 80s Democrat yeah. baby boomer. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that ideology hasn't really shifted that much. He seems generally to be on the right side of, you know, larger issues like racism and, you mm-hmm. know, things like that. Sometimes, you know, as you, as you mentioned in Insomnia, he, he'll, he'll try to engage with some ripped from the headlines kind of yeah. uh, political issues. And it's usually a bit clumsy, I feel like, when he does that. Oh, yeah. But do you think that the the Dark Tower has a political, to borrow a phrase you use a lot, a political valence, that King has a political valence in this series that he has, is even aware of or critically considering I mean,
6: those I, issues? I mean, I, I think that he, yeah, he, his perception of politics is very superficial as, as a member of his generation and certainly his class, you would imagine. So his his and someone who's been very,
0: very rich since he was quite young. Yeah. Relatively. Like he knew
6: he was, he came, he grew up poor and he knew poverty, but by the time he was writing this stuff, it had been a while. Yeah. Uh and as a result, I don't think that you can find too much uh like uh, like narrowly political content, but I feel like even though he probably doesn't recognize this because he has the filters of his generation and and, and class. Uh, on his perception. He, in the dark tower, I think articulates the specific, uh, uh, entropic, uh, socially destabilizing, uh, uh, and inhuman, uh, nature of capitalism, uh, just by recognizing in-, in broader strokes, like what is driving people to behave the way that they do, because that is his, specialty is is trying to like create these uh uh imaginative worlds where the people within them all have some sort of basic uh relatability which means relating to all the characters within the world
0: right so and, the vil- tries- and the villains are are sometimes oil extractors and and child slavers yeah virtually in this in these books right
6: and yeah and when you get when you take like all of their evil and you abstract away their just base self-interest, what you have left is this uh, this death drive, this desire to, ter- to stop the noise, to stop the, the gears, to uh, defeat all of the contradictions that are tearing them apart. Uh, and that is what makes the metaphor of uh, this uh, villain who is on purpose trying to destroy Reality. The pillars of reality mm-hmm. to annihilate them. Yeah. Uh which is the ultimate like insane goal. And therefore something that it, you'd imagine would be hard to get an audience to relate to. Uh it, it makes sense when you understand it as like the subconscious drive of everyone who finds themselves wielding selfish power uh in a system of technological alienation. Yeah. That they, they, they might think they want uh, what they want consciously, but what they deeply want is for the, the misery of living like that to end.
0: Yeah. And, and in, in these, in this series also, you know, the Crimson King and the, 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 as you say, the drive is just towards non-existence Mm -hmm. and right. And the scary, you know, the, the, the scary, potentially all consuming space is just this void full of demons and monsters that existed Mm -hmm. before whatever creation in Stephen King's cosmological multiverse. uh, And then, you know, presumably would just exist again afterwards. Right. So it really is, you know, and the story becomes a very, you know, this word again is now much more uh, pulped into meaninglessness than it was back when Stephen King was writing these books. But, you know, it is a very meta narrative at a lot of times. It's very much a story about stories and, and storytelling and, and at times and, and, you know, so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. And as, as kind of the whole series as, uh, just, you know, uh, that the fighting, the good guys are fighting against non-existence. They're just fighting against keeping the story continuing.
6: Yeah. Well, I think that all makes sense. If you understand it as like this, this psychological topography of Stephen King's consciousness, you know, yeah. like, like the Kodash spaces before he was born, the universe was brought into being by his perception of it. And the, the only meaningful, uh, like uh, motive to have is to just keep keep that tower up and keep that the spokes turning just so that the story can be told because that is the closest thing that there is to like a mystical understanding of practice in these books if if like there is this uh uh god and there is this transcendent uh exp- this transcendent Uh, dimension out of space and time, then the only way to uh, perceive it is to talk about it, is to tell stories about it and to keep it alive in the sort of echo uh, when you cannot perceive it because you collapse, you, you pass out. Like, like uh, Jake does when he sees the rose. All you have is the ability to uh, retroactively reconstruct it to others and then and then build the belief out of your the vividness of that narrative.
0: And so and I think King, yeah, as yeah. you as you kind of have said before, I think King really succeeds at that. He creates a very vivid, massive sprawling narrative that is very compelling and it's very. You know as you say it's clear that there there is a cosmology to his world it's not it it begins very nebulous but by the end of it it's really non nebulous you know? yeah and uh, so that yeah I think that's I think that's a success as a as a magnum opus or yeah. or what have you yeah
6: I mean he, you when you when you find out about I mean you, you don't even have to ask you just look at his productivity You look at how much he writes and has written his whole life. Like he clearly needs to write to live. Like he needs to uh, be turning his experience of life into this uh, this this world in his head. We're all building, but he is doing more to populate it, like uh, uh, actively instead of passively, because his imagination demands it. It needs he needs to build the the bridge of reality as he as he traverses it. Uh, and and so he he writes to live, and so the, this story is about how like telling stories is is that is essentially the meaning of life. Right? It's the yeah. meaning of life, exactly. Yeah. Which, by the way, is why I am absolutely flabbergasted by those who dislike the ending. Can we talk mm. about the ending? Please. Is that a, is that okay Please. if we spoil? We're all
0: spoil we're, the ending. We're spoilers. We're three hundred percent in spoilers. So it's okay. okay, cool. So. Uh, at the end of the book, after the Kingdoms and Kings has been
6: defeated, Patrick Danville erases him out of existence, literally mm-hmm. just, in his, just decides he's not there anymore. Patrick
0: I, Danville, the kid from Insomnia, the kid who has saved the, in the psychic of power of drawing or erasing reality at will. And he's yeah. like a weird, you know, he's like... A I wonder
6: why King. Stephen King... Uh, related to that character or right. find that character. It's somewhat, and, and
0: that's another thing, right? In the series is that the metaphors are very big and often yes. very in your face. And for some As people, well they, they don't like it. It's like, it's pop allegory. Like yeah. it's,
6: it's not supposed to be that hard to get. Yeah. Uh, but but after, after they, yeah. But they erase the Crimson King. Uh, Eddie and Jake go back to New York. To, changed, of course, by the hero's journey. Yeah. Uh, but they Roland- both
0: sacrificed themselves along the way.
6: Yes, and then, but Roland goes into the dark tower, which he's been seeking his entire life, goes to the, marches up to the top of the tower, uh, opens the door and finds himself back uh, at the edge of the desert, about to uh, follow the, the man in black. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this time, unlike uh, in the beginning of the Gunslinger book, he has uh, in his hand, the Horn of Eld, which he had dropped at Jericho Hill. And that's the end. Uh, and people were pissed about this ending. And I understand why, because <laughs> yeah. if you were in it for the just the story, it is not a terrib- terribly uh, satisfactory ending. It's not uh, a big confrontation. And it feeds into the reputation, partially deserved, that right. King has for not being able to end his stuff. Mm-hmm. But a lot, of, I think a lot of that is because... He's thinking in such, you know, uh, such all encompassing terms, like he's building a world and then concluding it. It's very hard to do
0: that plausibly unless oh, and you... If you. If you say, as you say, you know, he has to write, he has to create constantly. Uh, for him, it is, it, in fact, the meaning of life and his entire drive, uh, you know. It it might serve him better to just write continuously on one long hard drive, one long uh-huh. scroll, or whatever. You know, it might yeah. be kind of counter to that to try to actually put a cap on many yeah. of these. And
6: so stories. he he puts a cap on it the only way that makes sense, which is to say that this is this thing that seems like uh, a straight line is actually a curved, an inwardly inwardly curving uh, regression, which. Is it the final, uh, the, the, the cherry on top of the Sunday in terms of turning it into a fully conceived of theologically rich universe? Because it's that exit. That's, it's that empty, it's, that's the thing that makes stories unsatisfying as ending is because there is that final uh, off-ramp that, that from that reality that is never conclusively uh, dealt with. Uh, and, and the reason you can't deal with that is because it doesn't exist, because existence is uh, recurrence. It is not a straight line.
0: Uh, it only existed as you were reading and imagining it. Yeah.
6: Right. Everything only exists... Uh, uh, everything uh, exists simultaneously, uh, and it, it can't end. Uh, and so this... One of the few things that tries an epic narrative and actually recognizes that fact uh, by having... Uh, Roland be back to square one, uh, which, you know, echoes notions of it, reincarnation and stuff. Literally uh, but, and,
0: in the first lines of the first book. Yeah.
6: Yeah, And then having him this time have the horn of Eld, meaning that things could be different this time, meaning that the, uh, that there's not, there's, this isn't like cynical. A lot of people think, oh, it didn't mean anything. You know, the fact that he's got the horn means that this will, by definition, have to uh, play out in some way differently, and it is the possibility of that. It is the right. it is the prospect of uh, of change that gives uh, the your image as you're reading about Roland and saying goodbye to Roland. Your, your image of him moving forward is not of him being trapped in hell, right? Uh, it's not it's still not living.
0: pure. It's not pure eternal recurrence. It's right. it's eternal recurrence, as you say, with a little cherry. Right, which means
6: that his efforts will never be uh, in vain. He will be able to act out this pageant uh, fully convinced of the necessity of his action because anything could happen.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, in your—yeah, so in in, in your reading— of of that ending and of the series is the Hornibell purely just that, just the implication that there is something yet to be fulfilled. I think um, it's I mean, also
6: evidence of uh, of Roland's growth over the course of the series. Uh, human, and, like as
0: in in his humanity.
6: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, if you have a few couple more minutes, Matt. I wanted to just run down some of the uh unforgettable pop songs that appear in the uh, Dark Tower series. Uh <laughs> as mentioned, Stephen King is kind of an er, uh Boomer. He's oh yeah, a very pure strain of boomer. Absolutely. I think he loved the boss. I think he mm-hmm. loved, probably loved Gary Hart. I think there mm-hmm. was Actually, when I was reading some of the the synopses to refresh my memory, uh, at the very end of the last book, Susanna uh, leaves uh, leaves Roland side and goes back to the alternate universe New York, where she can be reunited with her friends and dog. And uh, and Gary Hart is the president in this mm-hmm. alternate universe. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he loves rock and roll. He loves he loves he loves to rock. So I just he
6: bought to... he bought a rock and roll uh, radio station
0: in Portland, o- o-
6: Maine. Uh-huh. That he uh, it, because he didn't want it to get bought and like turned into something else, like easy listening or something.
0: Right. Very sweet. I feel like he's kind of in the same uh, little Steven kind of energy. Where yeah. He just, he just oh, totally. loves he just loves the old rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um. So. <laughs> Uh, the song I probably enjoy the most when it appears is uh, ZZ Top's Velcro Fly. Velcro Fly, yes. Yeah.
6: Which is, that's a deep cut too. That's not, that's yeah. like a weird kind of disco-y song.
0: Yeah. Uh, Steven was clearly listening to the full albums of ZZ yes. Top quite oh, a bit. absolutely. Not, yeah. just, not just a radio. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one, uh, great song, uh, great band. Um, mm-hmm. That appears... Purely, it, only it's drum intro, right? Mm-hmm. As some kind of horrible repeating alarm, yeah, is sounding in uh, in post-apocalyptic city of Lud, right? Yeah. in the wasteland. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there's a lot of that where where you know there's the sense that their world, the world of the books, could be post an apocalypse in a world like ours, you know, it's, it's a, se- it's some kind of sense of yeah. civilization has risen and fallen over the millennia. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, Velcro fly, we get it. as just, just a horror, a horror inducing pulsing, uh, drum break. Yeah.
6: I like um, in the first art gunslinger book, uh, the, the, old-timey saloon keeper uh banging out hey jude on the piano yeah that's a very evocative image i remember as a kid being like wait a minute whoa what that's from our world what's going on here yeah,
0: yeah. he really sets it off with hey Jude" in the yeah. first book mm-hmm. and that's a vibe that i feel like has now been quite aped uh oh yeah right in yeah yes. you see that all in other places mm-hmm. um but yeah that was kind of the first like piercing of the of the veils of our realities, right? Where right. he's like, yeah. "There is yeah, that in the uh, the Sitco gas station, right?
6: Yeah, yeah. Now that's another real drop ball with the uh, screen adaptation because that's something that would really hit in a show or a movie with, with the 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 Dark Tower like universe just getting pierced with a with a pop a modern pop song, yeah." But yeah, also now everyone's done that, but they
0: always do it slowed down or some bullshit. <laughs> it's like a music box, yeah. And spiel kind of. Mm-hmm. Let's just uh, run through a few of the very vivid, grotesque, uh, memorable uh, sort of side folks in this. You have, of course, you mentioned him earlier, uh, Blaine the Mono. Mm hmm. Who is the uh, psychopathic unhinged uh, train that?
6: Yeah, he's basically he's he's a he. Uh, I feel like was a prescient uh, uh, cultural preformation of uh, like the redditor. Is <laughs>
0: Blaine's like if if Reddit took over, uh, uh, became a, like an AI train and tried to kill everybody. Gassed, gassed one of the last remaining human civilizations. Yep. Yeah. Um, Shardik, the uh, grotesque yep. uh, former guardian of the of one of the beams. He's a giant bear borrowed from the Richard Adams book, and is you know, quite vividly uh, disgusting, just very
6: gross. And uh, there's a whole section where he talks about, like, he writes from the point of view of the bear, and he he makes him very sympathetic.
0: Indeed, which is. Which is kind. I think yeah. that's maybe the very beginning of the third book, right? Yes. Yeah. That's right. It's the just within sense. the mind of, of Shardik. Yeah. The disease demon bear. Yeah. Which he also did with uh, Cujo too. Oh yeah. Cujo. Uh, you mentioned uh, Randall flag. Uh, he is kind of dispatched of, which is a thing people took issue with, but.
6: Well, the thing is, he's not dead, obviously like you can't get your you can't get bet out of shape that that Randall Flag didn't go out the way that he deserves because like with any of these stories he can't die or then the story's over.
0: Well, and and also kind of to your earlier points, King has written him in other stories since then and they right. take place at other points in time but as if if he
6: didn't get nuked in vegas (laughs) by the trash can man i think he can
0: survive getting eaten by up by a fucking spider by a spider yeah the books uh do you feel like the books succeed as well in as as horror i feel like there are times when they do and i feel like there there are moments
6: yeah uh the scene in wasteland where uh jake is uh in the the house uh-huh. Uh, and it comes alive and tries to eat him while he's going through the hole. I remember yeah. it's just as a kid that just being incredibly vivid and terrifying. Uh, and then it's been longer since I, cause I reread, uh, the, the last, the first three recently, I, I'm mm-hmm. going to reread the rest, uh, a little later. I haven't gotten to them yet, but I can't remember which of the later books was, but there's one where, uh, they're passing through like a dimensional tunnel underneath, like one of the, Northwest positronics buildings or something. Right. Yeah. And they feel <laughs> the presence of the creatures of Todash space mm. surrounding them, which are essentially
0: like Cthulhu, like, you know, Lovecraft. Yeah. No, it's, it yeah.
6: it's like, it, he, like he does that as well as he does the Lovecraftian, like, uh, uh, un- un- unconceivable horror better than, uh, any of the other people who try to ape that for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, also, you know, the artwork, there's a lot of visual art, you know, associated with all these books. I don't know if you read them in the editions with the, with the art. Yes. But, uh, yeah, yeah. That reminds me, you know, the wastelands remind me that the, the plates, the the artwork towards the end of that book, that's just of them, you know, being hurtled to their deaths by Blaine through the like less populated, more mutant, horrifying mm-hmm. parts of yeah, the wastelands. Yeah. And you're seeing all these really uh, kind of uh, elementally disgusting and disturbing, weird insectoid, fleshy, monstrous creatures. Those yeah, that no. artwork I remember as a kid when I read the book, actually like skipping over usually. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty gross. But do you have any particular memories or or, or favorites or or uh, feelings about uh, any art? The one I remember uh, the the most distinctly is
6: uh, Father Callahan in the Dixie Pig mm. with with the palantir or whatever, and and all surrounded by all the vampires. <laughs> the vampires and are swarming men. him. Yeah. yeah, and the fucking uh, the tahines and shit. That that stuck with me because yeah, you get uh, it's very it's very striking, and and yeah, the the sense of being totally uh, surrounded by. Uh, Monstrous evil, very powerful.
0: And again, it's just very gross. That whole, yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the, they that whole world in the, the setting gross. is very gross. And a lot of the yeah. time when Stephen King is the most horrifying, it's the most kind of base and gross, right? There's also a part in uh, the third book where Jake is uh, abducted by this disgusting pussy pirate. Oh, guy. God. And he's, oh, like dragged, and he's like dragged and he's like dragged through all of these kind of thunderdome-esque tunnels and Roland is chasing him and trying to catch him and there's basically just the constant implication that this boy is to he's be gonna, raped by absolutely. like hussy mutants and oh, God. you know Stephen King always just kind of goes there in a way that i think you know it it really is nicely leavened by his kind of charming goofiness in other areas because he'll just go to like really grisly, disgusting horror in a way that, uh, you know, it works for me. Yeah. No, he,
6: he gets in there with the juices and the crusts and, and yeah, he will, he will put children in danger in a way that most other writers in that register shy away from.
0: He loves it. And, and the book, uh, you know, in its climax, in its ending, uh, really completely centralizes and focuses on King's main obsession that he returns to throughout his career, which is psychic children,
6: right? He can't get enough (laughs) special kids,
0: but it makes sense. I suppose if ultimately the universe and the theme and everything is really just about creation of the story yeah that, that, that that the, I, the 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 basic currency is psychic children yeah 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 we're it's, everything is powered fundamentally by imagination and who's got more imagination than kids psychic kids yeah um well matt i i really appreciate your time this has been a tremendous amount of fun i encourage everyone although it has been so thoroughly spoiled uh to read the books if you haven't i think they're and I and and as you said, and it's you know, in my experience, I feel like you can really burn through them. They're they're oh, trying, really, no, they are truly really impulsively readable. Um, but Matt, any any kind of final thoughts or uh you know, uh I,
6: I gotta say that uh it sounds like a cliche, but having read the books and had the experience of, of living with them over the years, that uh I find that when I say something when I feel uh unsure or upset and i remind myself uh that all things serve the beam mm-hmm. uh it actually it helps it's good you think it, it does of, the job. Um,
0: you think of maturin the, the turtle yes the benevolent i absolutely turtle. think of the benevolent turtle mm-hmm. see the turtle
6: of enormous girth mm-hmm. on our his shell he holds the earth his thoughts are slow but always kind mm-hmm. he holds us all within his mind
0: This has been the Sam Mickens Tomorrow Show, episode three. If you'd like to reach out and uh, speak with the program, send in any uh, questions or uh, commentary, you can do so at sammickenstomorrow at gmail.com.